2: 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad
3: Drop pass right to McDavid down the middle wrist shot score! Home for breaking news on your favorite teams.
2: This is Inside Sports
3: with Reed Wilkins, brought to you by Cam LLP Injury Lawyers, representing injured people in Edmonton and across Alberta since 1962. On the
2: voice of your Edmonton Oilers and Eskimos. 6:30, Chad.
1: Day, and it is a very different Easter long weekend from anything we have ever experienced before. But hope you're doing well and are able to be in contact with your loved ones in some way. My name is Reed Wilkins. This is a best of edition of Inside Sports on 6:30. Chad, we have a lot to get to over the next hour. A lot of news in the sports world recently has centered around events being. Cancelled or postponed or placed on pause, the Canadian Football League has said its season will not start until July at the absolute earliest, and we'll see if they're uh, even able to go then. I was talking to Edmonton Eskimo's quarterback, Trevor Harris, and he had a great story about almost quitting football in high school.
4: The youngest small over here has tried to quit football several times. I didn't like it. I didn't. Uh, I didn't enjoy it. Um, I tried to quit my freshman year of high school. My mom paid me fifty bucks to finish the year because she said my dad would have been heartbroken. And uh, so I was like, "Man, fifty bucks—that's awesome!" You know, when you're a freshman in high school, that's a lot of money. And I figured I could eat uh, Chinese takeout food for the for the first three weeks of the season. And uh, so I kind of took that. And my first love growing up was basketball. I was a hooper. Um, I used to get to school at five thirty in the morning and and shoot hoops. Until the until the day would start, and I try and get four or five hundred jumpers up every day. And um, you know, I but I was I've always had a strong work ethic, and I've always wanted had a will, and a want to, uh, and uh, you know, the will to compete and those sorts of things. And throughout high school, my love for the game just kind of grew, and I couldn't believe that colleges wanted to recruit me and pay for my college. And went to a Division two school, and uh, kind of just did the best I could with where I was at, and used what I had, and, and loved my teammates, and I looked up, you know my junior year and there was NFL teams coming to watch me and it was uh, very very surreal, uh, especially in the fact that I didn't see myself as that kind of a player but I just tried to focus on loving my teammates and so that's been my process my whole life is just focusing on loving my teammates and uh, doing everything I can to not let them down and that's kind of what drives me is that my faith in my family and not letting my teammates down and that's kind of why I think my, my fire never burns out and I'm always able to you know have a have a stronger will to, to win and will to get better every offseason now did
1: you first play like how young were you when you like first first started playing and I'm getting the impression maybe it was your your dad that was encouraging you to get involved in football or
4: how did that go yeah I started when I was nine years old and I played free safety and tight end and uh, my first play ever I played football I'll never forget this. Um, you know, I was looking uh, through my face mask, you know, at the bottom of it with my head tilted up, and I looked out in the stands, and I saw my mom and dad, and I started waving to them, and they started pointing toward the field. And uh, there was a guy named Ricky Beecham. He was this big, tall running back. Uh, I played for the Jets, the Mary Major football Jets, and he played for the Packers, and he absolutely ran me over like Spike did to kids in the New York, in the uh, Little Giants movie. And I remember looking up at the sky going, this ain't for me, man. And, uh, and then sure enough, I just gutted through that year and I said, shoot, I'll just play my next year and, uh, just see how it goes. And they asked me to play quarterback cause I wasn't athletic enough to be running back. And, uh, I was like, I don't want to play quarterback. I want to run the ball. My dad was a running back. I want to be a running back, and sure enough, I played quarterback and just just really started liking the fact that I was dispersing the ball and I was able to kind of, you know, speak to the guys in the huddle and it and it make, it brings a little bit more passion to yourself when you're uh, when you're you're leading guys and that that kind of attracted me to the sport and I sort of liked it and. Wasn't very good at it, in my opinion. But uh, my freshman year of high school, it just kind of gutted through it, and I kept working at it and working hard at it. It just goes to show, if you work hard at something, you're going to continue to get better. And uh, God gave me a passion for this game and a passion to, to love my teammates, and it's turned into this, which I'm super grateful for. And um, just this path to, to mastery is never ending, and that's kind of what is so unique about this as well for me, and um, the fact that you know you can just continue to get better, continue to learn, continue to lead. And- and every year is its own unique challenges. It's just, uh, it's just something that's just so awesome about football. So, okay, so you mentioned a couple other
1: sports: uh, basketball, baseball. You mentioned golf too. So, when you were a kid, who did you look up to as an athlete? Was it was it football players, or were or was it athletes in other sports?
4: Um, yeah, you know, ever since I was a little kid, I was the biggest Kobe Bryant fan there in the world. I, I just adored Kobe Bryant to, to the ends of the just because of the way he approached the game, the way that um, he was tenacious in his preparation. He played every night like it was his last. I'd hear him say um, things like he didn't. Uh, he, he knew that fans weren't going to be able to see him play. Every night, so even on a, even on road games, he would make sure that he made it a point to go extra hard because he might that might be the only time somebody gets to see him play. And I just love the passion, uh, the desire he had to play the game, um, the killer instinct, the mentality, and, um, something about the way he played just kind of a, just always attracted me to love the way he was and who he was as an athlete. And so I always loved Kobe Bryant growing up, and maybe that's where my bas- my love for basketball kind of started. But uh, when I was little, I was a Bengals fan, and I looked up to. Jeff Blake and Carl Pickens, and you know if you know some names like that. You know you're you're a longtime NFL fan there, so uh, just enjoy uh, watching them play every Sunday and dancing on my couch every time he'd hit Carl Pickens deep on a on a go route. And uh, so I'd go outside and be Jeff Blake, and my brother be Carl Pickens in the backyard, and we'd have a ton of fun with it.
1: Well, some pretty interesting memories there from Trevor Harris and uh, good for the CFL and good for the Eskimos that he was able to stick with it. You know, there was a player in the NHL who had his career placed on pause long before the pandemic hit. And that is Elk Point native Mark Letestu, who played a few games for the Winnipeg Jets in October and then was out and was uh, back in the lineup with the Manitoba Moose of the AHL and hoping to rejoin the Jets in the NHL when the season was placed on pause and Latestu was struck with something called myocarditis that's an inflammation of the heart muscle
3: Uh, just uh, simple physicals uh, to start the year really Um, you know I, I didn't have any symptoms or or any obvious signs whether you know chest tightness or shortness of breath or anything like that it was just going through our our regular pre-season screenings and uh had kind of gone through the ekg and and one thing kind of led to another and test after test uh, and eventually we found it uh what was the issue uh and, and i i know nothing about it uh coming into it i hadn't heard a lot about it so i had to Kind of read up on it. And then uh, the doctors, uh, the way it works is the inflammation to get out of there, you just have to give your heart a break. Uh, And and that's really all it was. It was was a shutdown period uh, for uh, what they thought was going to be six months. ended up being a little bit shorter, uh, which is kind of fortunate for me. Uh, and I was about to get back there, uh, but then, obviously, uh, our world has kind of changed here, and, and it's taken a back seat. Yeah. So,
1: did, were you, did you have any pain, or were you were you weak, or have less energy, or out of breath, or anything like that? Or it just was something that maybe if you weren't a pro hockey player, it wouldn't have even been discovered?
3: Yeah, honestly, I had nothing. I had no no signs of anything no symptoms and that's probably the hardest part of when people are asking you uh you know how you're doing or or how you're feeling you you feel fine Uh, i I had nothing that i felt uh was limiting me uh but doctors are for their doctors for a reason um so you just you heed their advice uh because it's obviously very serious it's not it's not like playing with a broken arm uh where the break might just get worse uh, obviously if you play with something like this uh, you put your life in your hands and, and I'm not ready to, to do that on a consistent
2: basis
1: yeah so when were you able to and I know you were recently cleared to play or, or cleared to you know practice again and stuff which is a, another disappointing level to the season being placed on pause but when did you sort of start to, were you allowed to maybe be a little more active and, and work out or do things like that
3: well, I was able to work out uh, right, from, right from the diagnosis, but there was with, with limitations. So I couldn't get my heart rate kind of in the 150 range. Everything had to be conversational. Uh, so for, for a professional athlete, quite a bit less than what I'm used to pushing. Uh, so, coming back then now, probably a month ago, where I got cleared to finally practice and skate and push into those upper limits, uh, it, it set me back conditioning wise. And obviously, there's a bit of a mountain to climb, uh, which has <laughs> got another little obstacle in it here. Mark, a
1: little bit of an anniversary. It's going to be three years ago. On Saturday, that the Oilers clinched a playoff spot in 2017. You guys were able to beat the LA Kings to nail down a playoff spot, finally ending what was known as, uh, as the Decade of Darkness. What, what do you remember about building to that clinching scenario? And, and every player, even the guys who weren't here for the majority of those 10 years, which you weren't, knew about what the franchise had been here and the angst of the fans. What, what do you remember about the, the clinching game and everything going on around the team at that time?
3: Well, I think the the thing I take with it is the relief afterwards uh, getting in. I think, uh, you know, my first year, the, the closing of Rexall, and I don't think we we're really expected to to make the playoffs. It was Connor's first year in the injury. Uh, but then, obviously, he comes back, uh, puts in, you know, the year he had, and the team has, you know, there's several players on that team that had great years. And I think it's the reason why we were able to get in and, and do – you know, and win around in the playoffs. Uh, but I just remember that winning that game and finally being in, uh, you know, kind of, uh, kind of a weight off the shoulders because, all, I mean, all you hear is, you know, it's been a decade, it's been 11 years, it's, it's been whatever. So that, that pressure mounts on no matter who's wearing the uniform. It doesn't matter if you've been there one year or, or, or all 10. Uh, there's certainly a cloud of pressure around it. And to, to get in and get a chance uh, at a Stanley Cup and finally, I mean, I, for me, skating out for the, the warm-up at Game 1 uh, was special. Like just the energy, uh, the pent-up energy, the city, the province, the surrounding area I had uh, was really cool to be part of.
1: You know, I work with Rob Brown. We do overtime open line after every Oilers game. Rob played in the NHL. He uses the word belief a lot. When do you think that 16-17 team started to believe it was actually a good
3: team? Do you understand what I'm getting at? Yeah, you know, and and that's tough for me to pinpoint. uh, Because I I don't necessarily think, you know, in training camp you've got to... Yeah, you got one of those situations where I think everybody says they want to win the Stanley Cup, but you don't actually start believing it until you know a lot of cutoffs are American Thanksgiving. If you're in a spot, then you're like, okay, you know, we got a shot at this. We're we're in the playoff position. You know, odds say that we're going to be in at the end. So maybe at that point, you know, you're playing at a certain level and you're in the playoffs at that point. Uh, You're thinking if you play consistently, you're going to get in. Uh, But we knew we had special players, uh, but that's obviously not a not a definite when it comes to playoffs it's truly a team game Uh, and maybe as as the season went on we started to believe more and more but I thought our coaching staff was very good about uh, you know keeping focus you know day to day taking care of what we could that day Uh, and I think it led to us having more success as the year went on.
1: That is Mark Letestu 2006 MVP in the Alberta Junior Hockey League, now with the Winnipeg Jets organization.
2: You're listening to 630 Ched Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Well, nothing funny about the
1: Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal that helped them win the World Series. Ryan Dempster, Canadian, former big league pitcher, is going to tell us what he thinks about that. But there is a lot of funny things about... Ryan Dempster's career, he was uh, known as being a bit of a clubhouse goofball when he pitched, and he was no stranger to pulling off clubhouse pranks. I
2: don't know. I got a list of about 100 of them. Um... (laughs) Yeah, well, different ones. Clubhouse pranks. I mean, there was anything from you know the frozen. You could do the the frozen shirt. So you take somebody's shirt, hang it on a um, uh, uh, what do you uh, call it? Uh, what do they call those things? Hanger. Yeah, uh, put it on a hanger, soak it in water, put it in the freezer, and then you put it in their locker the next day. So they come in and go put their favorite shirt on. It's frozen. There's you know the the typical hot foot or things like that. The eye black on the inside of the hat. So you put eye black on the inside of hats so when they put their hat on and then they go shake and then they come back in and have a gigantic black line around their forehead it's pretty funny oh, um but my favorite one i think i ever did was uh will omen who was a, a left-handed reliever we had he pulled a couple little pranks on me and as he as guys found out quickly i was the wrong guy to do that to. so the next day i i brought a camera car in from mlb uh productions and i took his car pulled it up in front of the clubhouse while he was out shagging batting practice, put it up on blocks, took all four of his tires, and then hit him around the ballpark. Oh, so um, I told him if, if he messed with me again, he could be expecting his house on some sort of stilts. And uh, that was the last time he ever did anything. How long did it take him to find the tires? Um, he started to find them pretty quick. The best part was he found two of them quickly because one was in the shower. And and then after he couldn't find the third one, um, the camera crew was strutting out with him, and then he's trying to play Johnny Cool Guy, like with his chest puffed out, his peacock feathers up, like like they were doing like a special on left-handed relievers, you know. And they followed him all the way out to the bullpen, and the last tire was sitting in the bullpen waiting for him. So yeah, I like to have a good time.
1: That's it. Well, yeah, you sound like a fun teammate for sure, as long as you're on the right side of your, your jokes, I suppose. Uh, on a on a less uh, on a less Joking matter. Uh, We we haven't talked just since the Houston Astros got uh, busted for sign-stealing. So, you know, the manager got fired, the GM got fired, uh, a couple other guys who were with the Astros that year and went on to other organizations, didn't keep their jobs. Uh, they, they do keep the world series. Um, Ryan, you know, as a guy who pitched and, and, sign stealing has been a part of baseball probably since the first ever game where they use signs. Uh, but I mean, in my mind, the Astros certainly took it to a next level and certainly, uh, Uh, use technology the way perhaps it had never been used before. I'm just, I'll start generally, your reaction when when this story all
2: broke. Yeah, just unfortunate. Unfortunate for the game because they do have really talented players there. So then you have this, like, what would have happened had they not done that? And so there's there's that aspect. I I just said, just from my opinion, I, I just say throw an asterisk next to it an asteroid, an, an Astro-X Nick? Right. <laughs> what would you call an astro Yeah, something like that. Um, something like that. Just where, you know, when people say, well, why is that there? Well, this is what happened, because over time, people will forget, right? And the truth is, they they did something that they shouldn't have been doing, and I think Evan Gaddis gave an interview the other day, he was really candid about it, and really great, he said, yeah, it is tainted. Um, we cheated the game, and it's, and it's not right, and it's not fair, but in the moment, it's hard i think sometimes when you're getting away with something i said it's like somebody who continuously you know drives 20 miles an hour over the speed limit and they get pulled over for speeding and they're like well what's going on here this is ridiculous why am i getting punished it's like well you know when you when you continuously get away with something get away with something you just think that it's okay and then you start to become a culture that thinks that's okay and everybody starts to feel that way um and And so they they got punished, they got punished in a big way. um the people are not going to forget, and even when they get back to playing baseball, it's going to go on on and on and it's unfortunate that it happened. It's unfortunate for the teams that weren't doing it. I just wondered how. Like, at some point, nobody heard it. Like, if I'm out on the mound and every time I'm throwing a breaking ball and they're laying off good pitches and I just keep hearing a whack, 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 like, you know, Pertin's playing drums down in the tunnel, like, somebody's got to say something, you know? And I just, I thought it was interesting that over that whole period that nobody ever even really noticed about it. So... When
1: you pitched, I mean the whole. I guess the most common situation I would think of there's there's a runner on second base, so your catcher has to. I, what would you guys? You would change the, you would change the the way he would give you the the pitch call, or what would you do?
2: oh man so many different ways you do first sign after two first sign after uh three you could do second sign shake go to first sign um you could go sign after out so if there's one out it's the sign after you put down a one if there's two outs it's after two um and then you shake and you wipe and you have touches on the mask and you have so many different formulas i always felt the easiest way to do it to if you felt like somebody were Stealing signs from you. You just call your catcher. You say, "Hey, call for a slider down and away right here," and then you just throw a fastball right underneath the guy's chin, and they'll stop real quick. Right. They'll just go. They'll just really quickly go. Whoa, whoa, whoa! I think maybe we got this wrong, guys. And I'm not really going to be on this program the rest of the evening. And and then you just kind of go your way. And I always felt that was a really good way. That is some chin music for.
3: Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm
1: Ryan Dempster. Hi,
3: this
4: is Armando Sewell of the MTS Eskimos, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 630 Chad.
1: So many great stories and so many great storytellers in the world of sports across Canada and the United States. We caught up with one. Tim Roy is the play-by-play voice of the NBA's Golden State Warriors.
0: Crowder to throw it in, down the floor, high in the air, it's a jump ball, Hail Mary deflected away, Iguodala saves it to Azealy, ball game's over, Curry spikes the ball at the buzzer, and the Golden State Warriors keep the streak going. In double overtime, the Warriors went
1: 124-119. to That is the voice of our next guest, Tim Roy, he's the play-by-play voice of the Golden State Warriors on 97.5 The Game. Tim, thanks for joining
0: us on Inside Sports in Edmonton, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. Uh, you know, like everybody else, it's a it's a weird time, and it's a once in a lifetime thing. And and um, you know, you're just uh, you know they here uh, in the U.S. They've asked us to shelter in place again for another month. We'll be uh, in the house till end of April, then we'll see where we are at that point. Uh, you know, we were lucky a little bit here in California. Our, the San Francisco mayor and our governor were very quick to react and to get people you know of, from gathering for the most part you know i mean there's people everywhere who aren't you know uh really looking at this as seriously as they should but um you know, we'll see hopefully um hopefully it's not as bad as as it could be and and uh, you know just just gonna do uh, do my part here and and uh i've got Enough. I've got a little studio in my home office here. I can work from home. I can do. We have a weekly show tomorrow night, so I'll do that and and uh, just kind of you know do what you can.
1: Yeah, well well said, Tim, and we appreciate you uh, taking the time to join us here on, on 630. Chad, uh, an interesting opportunity for us to catch up with you. Let, let's start with that bit of, bit of audio that you played, and, and thanks to one of your colleagues for firing me off a couple of your play-by-play clips. Uh, was that, So that was the longest winning streak to start a season? What was that, 2015
0: we're looking at? Yeah, 24-0 to start the season. Um, it ended up in a bitter, uh, you know, bitter Case they lose to Cleveland in in seven games, and when you go to the Warriors' practice facility, you know they have all the you know championship banners up in the practice facility there, as well as inside the arena. But they do have a plaque in one side or a, a, a sign, if you will, and it says you know best regular season record seventy three and nine. But they don't make it very big. It's 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 there to remind them that yeah, it was a great year, but didn't end the way you wanted to. But it, those were. Uh, Really magical times. You know, I was blessed to be along for the ride there, the five-year ride, and, uh, you know, one of the best streaks, you know, in, in history. In fact, you know, you had to go back to the, to the Stanley Cup in the mid-50s to find two teams that had faced each other in the finals four years in a row uh have in Montreal, Detroit in the 50s, would have it not. I believe so, yeah. I believe I know I know one of them was the Red Wings, I believe the other one was the uh, the hated Liz Habitat.
1: <laughs> well, cuz I believe uh, cuz I believe the Canadian <laughs> it was only a 16 league, but I believe the Canadians were in the final right. 10 years in a row. I think they won one yeah, of their okay. first five and, and then and then won five in a row. Uh, Tim uh 1995 you started doing Warriors games? 95 Warrior games
0: uh, got in the NBA in 1989. Um, yeah, as you can tell, I'm, I, I grew up in New England, therefore that's my my disgust at anything Montreal Canadiens <laughs> gila fleur ruined my childhood. Um, but uh, no, so, yeah, so I've, I've been here a long time, and, and it's 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 a great place to be. Uh, the Warriors announcer, it's a, it's an incredible fan base, and we were awful for a long, long. time time but these people kept coming out they, they came out in in numbers year in year out and they know what good basketball is they don't get fooled by you know a flash in the pan they know what's lasting and so it's always been a privilege to uh, to announce this fan base well and
1: i wanted to ask you about that and f- for the oilers here we I mean, we had the we had the decade of darkness they didn't make the playoffs for 10 years they got in in 2017 and then they've missed the the, the last two again this year they you know they they were going to get in and they they will be in if, if the playoffs do uh, get picked up here but i i believe in your first you'll correct me if i'm wrong i believe in your first 15 seasons as golden state warriors play-by-play announcer you called one playoff series and now obviously we know yeah. them as as an incredible franchise like what turned it around eventually
0: well, uh, here's here's what happened. Uh, from working on the Kings' broadcast, and I wasn't doing play-by-play for every game. But by the time I left in '94 '95, I was coming off a season where I'd done 50 games. But and but from '89 through 2006, the NBA teams I announced for did not get to 500. And then in 6 07, we we uh, made the playoffs. The Warriors beat Dallas in the first round, lost in the second round. And then, again, go back down a little bit of a, a dark period for a while. And what changed is when the team was sold. Uh, we uh, got new owners with Joe Lacob and Peter Goober and... Uh, they basically said from day one, Hey, we're going to win. We're going to spend the money to win. We're going to commit to win. We're going to hire great people. And they've done that. And, and that's been the biggest difference. And of course, you know, let's face it, um, you you get, when you win and, and you do it through the draft, sometimes you get a little lucky and people didn't see in Steph Curry, what Don Nelson saw in Steph Curry, what Larry Riley saw in Steph Curry. He was our general manager at the time. And they, um, They eventually uh, looked at Steph Curry, and when they drafted him, Don Nelson told me, we got the best passer in the draft, which I thought was a really interesting thing to say because he was the best shooter in the draft. And so I'm thinking, okay, if he's the best passer and the best shooter, we've got a player here. And it was evident from day one that when he had the ball and he was on the floor, uh, the Warriors were a better team. And there was something special about him. People, People follow Steph Curry. And and because he's such a generous and, and unselfish superstar, so when you combine the ownership sale and the drafting of Steph Curry, and that set in motion this chain of events that led to this incredible run they had. Tim Roy joining
1: us tonight on Inside Sports does play-by-play for the Golden State Warriors. Happy to catch up with Tim tonight. Tim, uh, do you call? Are all the NBA announcers always courtside? Nobody does it from up top, do they?
0: Like- oh no no! We're radio, radio, and and now for a certain part, TV, are going off the floor. Radio's been off the floor now for probably about the last ten years. Oh really? And, I didn't uh- realize that. Okay yeah only only a certain amount of of uh of places are we still on the floor and that that's gonna change probably in the next four or five years. We're on the floor in Toronto in the second row, which is a great great spot to be in and we're on the floor in in Phoenix and Chicago and a couple of other places but but that's really about it and um so yeah, so it's it's different. You don't have the intimacy. You're not privy to some of the back and forth between the officials and the players and the coaches. But you know, it's it's the sign of the times. They can make a lot of money selling those seats. Right. And and you can't can't argue with that. But uh, but yeah, we're not we're not in the gondola just yet. But we are off the floor.
1: Okay, uh, Tim. We got to talk briefly uh, last week when we were we were setting this up, and I, and I want you have a couple of Edmonton tie-ins that we're gonna get. But I I wanna take you like back to the very beginning. If 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 there is a if there's a significant mark, like was there a do you remember the first game or event you did play by play for or what made you wanna do it? I mean it's a it's a great profession. Comes with a a lot of accolades, obviously if you're good at it and reach the the peak of it like like you have, but it's also incredibly competitive to to get a job in one of the four major pro leagues. But where did it kind of start for you?
0: Well, um, it's it's. I was. I had a, a period of time when I was a kid and I was sick, and my mom had fallen off a ladder and, and injured her eye, and and just she, she was legally blind in her left eye, and that qualified her for getting records that were basically books on records, kind of like you know getting a an audio book today, except back then, you know, you didn't have the internet, but you had a record because they'd send you a little photograph player and the. And the books on record you wanted, and you could get them for free if, if you were legally blind. And my mom would order these records, and while she did her housework, and, and when she came come back from her job, she would listen to these records. And so I was sick, and so she ordered me a record. She knew I liked sports. And there was a, uh, a book by a guy named Red Barber, who was a great announcer in Major League Baseball for years. And he narrated the book. And it was, it was, I was spellbound. I thought, this is such a cool thing. What a great way to make a living. What a great job to have. And so from that point, when I was about eight years old, it's really all I've ever wanted to do. And to be blessed to do it, I mean, every day I come in this office, I start going through stuff. I do some work. I was working on some old interviews today that we're going to air on our weekly show, some nostalgic ones. And, and, uh, it never feels like work to me. It's always fun. It's always, you know, uh, you know, my passion is, is my job and, and it's, it's great. And so that's it. And then the first, wow, the first game I did professionally, I'd done some public address work at some baseball leagues around Hartford, Connecticut, but I went to college in upstate New York, Utica College, and they had a fledgling uh, hockey program at the time, and I was the one who would get up and, and, you know, they couldn't get good ice time, so sometimes their games were like 8 a.m. on set, on Sunday. And so, you know, who in college gets up at 6 a.m. on a Sunday to go to, you know, D3 hockey? But that's what I did. And after my sophomore year, local radio station the play-by-play guy for hockey got promoted from his uh, job and, and so he couldn't do all the games it was an eastern league team in town the utica mohawks coached by a guy named larry mickey who had spent some time with the buffalo sabers and So they needed a backup minor league hockey announcer. And I fit fit their criteria perfectly. I was young and naive and to be had cheap. And so um, I did about 20 games that year for him. And then that led to a summertime job and everything else. But, yeah, minor league hockey was the, the first sport I ever did.
1: You just gave a great quote: "Young, naive, and to be had cheap." That's what I'm going to ask people who are going to our local broadcasting college here in Edmonton about how to get into the business: be young, exactly. naive, and be had cheap. now <laughs> so what's you? You do have uh, people are going to love this. For, for, we'll, we'll stick with the hockey theme. Well, uh, yeah. we'll you, you, there's a sort of a sort of a tie into the
0: Oilers. What was this about again? There is a tie into the Oilers. I have a tie into the Oilers when um, that year. Um, Uh, I did a game down, uh, a couple games down in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, the Cherry Hill Aces. They were coached by a guy named Muzz McPherson, who would show up and he had that punch-imlac fedora on. You know, he always had that behind the, the bench. And he was great to me. I mean, he was... He was perfect for, you know, you're always looking and doing Miley hockey. To, to, you know, if you don't have somebody back in the studio, which I didn't, I had to fill that time in between periods, and so I would go and do these long interviews, and Muzz was great. I could ask him three questions, he'd give me 15 minutes, it was awesome, and... Uh, he had this gravelly old voice, and his claim one of his claims to fame was that he was the coach of the Sioux Greyhounds in the Ontario Junior League, and his star player was Wayne Gretzky. And so uh, that's one of my ties to Edmonton. And then the other one is that I've had this great career where I've been able to do so many different things in, in different sports is that I'm one of the few Americans that has called Canadian League football, Canadian Football League games. And we, I was the, one of the voices, the radio voice, the first year, and I was on the TV broadcast the second year of the Sacramento Goldbinders. No and so uh, I've been to Commonwealth. I loved it. I thought it was fun. I personally, I thought it was the best field in the CFL at the time, and um, just just enjoyed it and enjoyed the league. I thought it was so much fun because you know it's 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 the rare football league where you're, you know, it's almost like an arena. The league where you're down 21 with four minutes to go and yet you still have a great chance you can really get back in the game really quickly and so uh i
1: enjoyed my time Oh, that's all. Awesome. Yeah, David Archer, Sacramento Gold Miners Dave, quarterback.
0: David goes. Archer, yeah. yeah, and Mike Pringle, and uh, yeah, we had we had some decent players, but we had a coach that was a little stubborn, shall we say? Uh, he thought on on third and one or second and one that you would run the fullback blast, where the fullback would get the ball eight yards behind the line of scrimmage, and that doesn't seem to work in the in the CFL. Was that was that Case
1: so. Stevenson? Was he the coach then? That was Case Case Stevenson? Who then? Yeah, and he coached one year here with the Eskimos when Archer was the quarterback, and he uh, his brief tenure is not fondly remembered by most fans of the green and gold. Shall we just leave it at that? There
0: is a, <laughs> there is a, I have a uh, one, my first year, we, our backup quarterback was Kerwin Bell, kid who played at Florida. Really nice guy. And he was a huge NBA fan. So we would talk NBA all the time, because I was with the Kings broadcast then. And Archer got his his bell rung on a play, and they brought him off the field, and the, they had the ball on the right hash and they called for like a, like a a almost like an old term, a down and out. I don't know what the route was. But it was a, a throw to the far sideline. So Bell makes this throw and I see him. He's trying to loosen his arm up. So after the game, I asked him, I said, the first time I ever had to throw a 50 yard down and out. <laughs> 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 Cause the field's so wide that you know, he wasn't used to that. And he really had to hammer that thing to try to get it out there. But but uh, yeah, no. So I, I I enjoyed Edmonton. You know, I, I, one of the the great things that I got to do in that league was I got to places I probably wouldn't have, you know, uh, automatically gotten to like like Edmonton. I won't mention Calgary. I know I know the audience. Um, you know, you, you go three times to Vancouver in one year. How, how good is that? I mean, Toronto and and you know the only place I really. Can honestly say that I'll probably never get back to was Regina. They just just didn't have a lot going on there. So
1: they love the team, though. They 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 love oh. that team. It's like it's like oh. a U.S. college atmosphere. The way they rally around that club.
0: You know, you're absolutely right, and, and they were great people. There's just not a lot to do there, you know. Uh, we try. We had an early, my might have been our first or second game was up there, and I remember we tried to get in a quick round of golf, and this is, what, probably July, probably? Yeah. And, Uh, I remember on my second putt, I looked down on my arm, and there were mosquitoes lined up like they were in a gas line on my arm. You know, just then I thought, oh, my God. We we get
1: those little critters here, too, but, uh, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, Tim Roy, joining us on inside sports, play by play voice for the Golden State Warriors, and he shared some memories of uh, calling uh, ECHL hockey and doing some CFL games in the '90s man Tim, I, I wish we had more time, but I, I want to wrap up with kind of a maybe a bit of a quirky one, but you've okay. made you 've made most of your your living as a play by play man doing basketball you, you mentioned you 've done some other sports at at this point in your career. If they said, "Okay, Tim, like we need you to do like thirty uh, San Francisco Giants games, or you got to do San Jose Sharks for a month," would you kind of be like, "Well, broadcasting, broadca- is broadcasting, and play-by-play is play-by-play," or would you feel a little off kilter doing a different
0: sport now? <laughs> No, I, I, I think I could do it about uh, maybe, let's see, about 15 years ago, I was also one of the TV announcers of the Oakland A's. And so I would get about 30 games a summer. And so I did both. I still do some minor league baseball up in Sacramento when they need somebody to fill in for their guy. And um, and actually, uh, one of the awards that I've won in my career was I was in Phoenix in the late '80s, and I won best play-by-play award in the state of Arizona one year, and because because I convinced my boss to let me broadcast a, um, a uh, preseason game between the New York Rangers, I think it was Vancouver, oh. came into Phoenix. They were trying to drum up some. Uh, some support, and so I convinced him to let me do the game. I did the game, and he liked it so much. He submitted for an award, and I won. And that was the only hockey game I had done in about, about five years. So that was uh, that was pretty remarkable.
1: That's awesome. Well, Tim, thank you so much for doing this. I'm glad we've made contact. Really appreciate sharing some stories and and letting people know on uh, how you've been able to accomplish what you have and and uh, how the Warriors were able to turn it around as a franchise. And now that I got your number, the next time the Warriors start a season 25 and 0 or whatever, we're gonna have to get you on the show. <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, just again, can't tell you how much fun I had uh, with my time in Edmonton and, and loved going there. And uh, just to everybody just be safe. It's, uh, you know, I appreciate my parents now. They lived through the Depression and they always had canned goods on hand because they were never going to stand in a food line again. And so I appreciate what they went through now. And uh, I just hope everybody stays safe.
1: All right, that's Tim Roy. This is the best of Inside Sports on 630 Chad, Man, that was a great chat with Tim and uh, a lot of ties, a lot of his experience in Canada. Who remembers the Sacramento gold miners? And then they moved, and what were they in there last year? The uh, the, uh, San Antonio...
2: With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them it's this willingness decisiveness and resilience that sets marines apart with our fighting spirit we don't just fight battles we win them marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown and through adaptable problem solving we do just that learn more at marines.com you
1: know texans that's who they were in their last year in the canadian football league the good old american expansion days in the cfl
2: Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins is
3: brought to you by CAM LLP Injury Lawyers. Representing injured people in Edmonton and across Alberta since 1962.
1: Well, we're winding her down tonight. Really appreciate you tuning in, and uh, I hope you are safe and healthy wherever you are. Tough time for a lot of people. It really is a pleasure to be able to bring you the show, and if it's a little bit of a distraction or or helps you get through your day, then that certainly means a lot to me. This has been a best-of edition of the show. You've heard from Trevor Harris, Mark Letestu, Ryan Dempster, and Tim Roy. Thanks to Dave Campbell. He's the producer of Inside Sports. My name is Reed Wilkins. Happy Easter.